Welcome to Four Advisors by Advisors. I'm your host, Evan J. Mayer, and today we have a special guest, Mr. Ed Grippy. <laughs> Got to settle the crowd down. Welcome, Ed. Thank you. Thank you. Ed is the regional manager of the Southeast region for B. Riley Management, and Ed has been in our business since 1996 uh, through BrokerCheck and over 25 years in the business, um, 17 years in the wirehouse. Correct. And then seven years in the bank channel. Is that pretty? That sounds about right. Pretty accurate. So my story on how I met Ed, I was at SunTrust and I was there for, it was coming up on seven years. And I think we had met, I want to say we met November, December of 18, somewhere around there. I was thinking I wanted to maybe stay in the bank channel. And, but I wanted to potentially go towards a hub and we went, and I, I don't know how we got connected. I, uh, did you reach out to me? Do you remember? I'm, I'm sure that I did, either LinkedIn or a cold call or some combination thereof. Something like that. And me and Annie went and visited Ed, and we were asking a little bit about pricing and some of the things we could do and how the referral flows were going. And I remember, I think we met twice, and then we went back to the bank, and we were kind of considering it and kind of thinking over. We had till March of 19, and then all of a sudden, as we were kind of contemplating that, the buyout happened. Right. Um, and I don't know if you remember, we texted each other, I think it was that morning. That morning. Yeah. I think and, you said something about it looks like I'm not getting my check. <laughs> something along those lines, yeah. And funny enough, I went independent and didn't get a check, so that's how it works, right? right. But um, so Ed was very much involved in the management of Scott and Stringfellow, which was a completely different segment than the branch advisors. It was. It was, the branch advisors, if I'm not, you know, let me know if I'm right. The branch advisors got referrals of less than 250,000 and then everything else was supposed to go to Scott and Stringfellow. Is that correct? Well, and they, they also had a, a trust division that uh, they, they routed a lot of the bigger relationships to. Matter of fact, they preferred to route them there, but you know, it is a very traditional bank channel with some limitations. So we got a pretty good flow of introductions through the bank channels. I think that, yeah, that was one of the reasons I wasn't so keen on coming at that time. I think it was 5 million and above. Was is that, was that the number that went to? Yeah, it, it, there was you know gray areas around that. It really had to do with what the client was looking for, but their first preference would be to put it in the bank channel. It was more profitable for them and they had more control over the client. But uh, you know, there are a lot of cases where we were the best solution and the relationship managers on the bank side knew that. And so we benefited from that relationship for sure. Yeah. And you were there for seven years. You know, was there a dramatic difference? You were at Merrill for so long. You left Mother Merrill. You went there. Was there a dramatic difference between Merrill, the wirehouse side to the bank side? Yeah. I mean, and I don't really, I never felt like I worked for a bank when I was with Scott and Stringfellow. We were a regional firm with about 300 advisors. And we operated pretty independently. Really, my only frustration was when we had to interact with the bank, uh, which was when a client needed some lending. Uh, and, uh, and of course, we enjoyed the referrals and introductions, but we very much operated independently. We had a very uh, simple compensation plan, a very simple management. I mean, I, I think I reported to the guy who reported to the CEO. And so it was just easy to navigate. And that was vastly different from Merrill Lynch, where, you know, there was... 12 people between me and the CEO, uh, even when I was at a complex level, uh, director level. Uh, so it was a completely different environment and a much better environment, quite frankly. Yeah, it's interesting because when I was um, when I was with Bank Atlantic early on in my career and they got bought by BB&T, the conversation was around 
the BB&T financial advisors would get referrals of 250 or less, and then the rest would go to Scott and Stringfellow. And, and I remember they said, well, Evan, you can go to Scott and Stringfellow if you choose during that merger. And I was like, well, my book's not big enough if it's more of a wirehouse type of feel. And it's even when I met you a few years later, it's kind of funny. BB&T is const constantly coming after <laughs> well, wherever I'm working. Um, the, you know, that I remember speaking to you about that a little bit too. And it was almost like you guys saw yourself separate from the bank, even though you were owned by the bank, you kind of had the benefit of both worlds. Yeah, we, we really did. I mean, I didn't report to anyone at BB&T. We worked with them. They said BB&T on my paycheck, but I, I reported to no one there. And, you know, we were growing quickly. We were the fastest growing regional firm, Scott and Stringfellow, for several years in a row. And, you know, it was a great situation. And uh, the bank referrals were a, a part of that. Um, but they pretty much left us alone. And, um, you know, that that all changed when uh, when they merged with SunTrust and decided to uh, to kind of point things back towards the big bank model, which I had no interest in. Yeah, it was interesting during that concept because we were, you know, from us on the sidelines, we were all going to say, who's going to win, right? And your side was saying certain things to you. Our side was saying certain things to us. And as that merger kind of unfolded, we saw like certain people got the leadership roles or didn't get the leadership roles and so on and so forth. You know, you had, we actually were talking about this briefly on, on the call. When these mergers happen, it could, most of the time, a lot of people end up departing. And we saw a bunch of advisors leave and go to RBC. What were your thoughts on that when you saw that happen? Yeah, I mean, w when I came to Scott & Stringfellow, it was just me, a desk, and a phone in South Florida. I, I didn't have any clients and they had no financial advisor. So over the course of six years, we opened five offices, brought in 15 advisors, about the time I left, we had about $2 billion of assets under management, and we're doing 14 or $15 million in revenue. So we created all that from scratch. I always thought they were headed in the wrong direction, and I was the first over there to leave. And, and since most everyone I hired has also left. So you know, it was bittersweet, I guess. It was disappointing to see everything that I built to be destroyed. But uh, you know, I, I guess uh, some ill feelings towards the, the way they handled things. And so I guess some pleasure in seeing everyone leave and, and kind of confirming my decision to leave as well. Yeah, that was a big, big group too. I think it was about a billion in assets, if I'm not mistaken. And that was recently. There's always a winner in these mergers and it could be the platform, it could be the management, it could be the operations side of things. And it was interesting to see how the whole thing ended up playing out. So, you know, as far as recruitment goes, you're now at um, B. Riley. What's B. Riley like? How is B. Riley different than Scott and Stringfellow and Merrill? What's unique there? It's similar to Scott and Stringfellow in that it's a small regional firm with you know hundreds instead of tens of thousands of advisors. B. Riley bought a, a firm in Memphis actually to get into wealth management originally. So you've got home office with some nice people who are interested in helping and you have that kind of personal relationship like we had at Scott and Stringfellow. You know, the one of the real advantages at B. Riley is that their heritage is investment banking, primarily in the small and mid-cap markets. And so, you know, if you have clients or you're pursuing clients, corporate clients that need that type of work, that need capital to grow and expand and companies that want to go public and buy their competitors, we, we have an, a real option to make those introductions. And then out of that investment bank also comes a lot of investment opportunities. You know, the small to mid-sized companies, if they really like them, we'll put our own capital into them and then give our clients an opportunity to co-invest. So there's a lot of synergies there between those 
organizations, and they have another, uh, several other related businesses, advisory, real estate. Uh, they actually have a tax practice. And so there, there's opportunities to network across all those businesses. And it's really interesting to engage with an investment bank that's you know, working with companies that are actually in our backyard and, and not the Fortune 100 company where you're generally not going to interact. So you guys kind of have a niche in the small mid-cap space, and that gives you some big opportunity to, to introduce. How many advisors are currently under you? So there's just a handful in South Florida. There's five of us on the team currently, but the goal is to expand like I did at Scott and Stringfellow, open new offices and new markets um, and bring advisors in. E-Riley Advisory is one of the other companies and they're a high-end consulting firm and uh, we co-locate with them in a lot of markets because it makes sense. There's opportunities to work together and we share real estate. So any place they have an office, I have instant real estate. If we've got a, an advisor or a team that, you know, it makes sense that we've got a place to put them in as we kind of grow, expand into new markets. Excellent. How many locations? I'm working on the Southeast, uh, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina. Their headquarters before we bought them was in Atlanta, so they have a big operation there. But all the major markets uh, yeah. in that area, they have a presence. Fantastic. Are there, you know, in the Scott and Stringfellow days, you, there was probably some politics with the bank, as you said, with loans and stuff. And obviously, on the bank side of things, where I came from, the politics were humongous. Is there much politics at a small boutique firm like you're at? Not really, no. I mean, there's no other advisory channel, right? So there's no bank brokers, there's no trust department. We, we are wealth management at that firm, so any friction between competing wealth platforms doesn't exist. Uh, so that part is good. And, um, you know, their investment bankers are entrepreneurs. Retail bankers are not entrepreneurs. Yep. And so you know, they view every decision as a return on investment. You know, what's the investment we have to take? What's the potential risk? What's the return on that investment? And then if it makes sense, we do it. And so it's nice to work for entrepreneurs who understand business and risk and growth. And it makes business discussions a lot more pleasurable than kind of fighting a hierarchy of, of bankers. Absolutely. And you're producing a manager. I am. Yes. Yeah. So, so it's, T tell us a little bit about the pros and cons of being a producing manager. Yeah, so giving away my book of business years ago was was an enormous mistake at Merrill Lynch. In five years, I had and, and and from scratch and knowing nobody had you know raised well over a hundred million dollars and wanted to be a director with that firm badly, and so I gave that business away. And um, you know, once the financial crisis hit and all the directors lost all their stock. Uh, they gave big retention bonuses to the advisors to stay, and the directors got nothing, and so should have held on to my clients. Mm. So, I, uh, but when I moved to Scott and Stringfellow, they allowed me to do both. So I, I built another hundred million dollar plus practice there, alongside of the other work. And so I like doing both. The only security in this business comes from a book of satisfied clients. So yep. I'll, I'll never give that up again. I did leave a fair amount of that behind when I made the move because of the clients that were connected to the bank. And I knew that was the case, which was fine. And so I'm on round three of building another $100 million practice and d doing both there's security in that. And then there's, you know, as a player coach, you're doing that job every day, uh, same job that the advisors that you're leading and guiding do. And so you, it keeps you, keeps you in the game and keeps you involved. And, um, and I think that's really the, the best way and the best model in my view. Yeah, and it, it makes situations advisors are going for relatable and how to deal with something and the emotional end that goes on with decisions that need to be quick and spontaneous. 
Yeah, you'll lose sight of uh, of you know those client conversations, particularly in difficult markets that we have right now. But uh, you know, the advisors that I'm working with, I'm, I'm doing the same exact job they are and dealing with the same exact issues. So it gives you the opportunity to share ideas. In some cases, work together, partner together on certain situations. And so, you know, player coach is a good role in this business. And like I said, as from my standpoint, you know, the security comes from those clients. And you know, there's, you're only one merger away from looking for a new firm in this business. And, and I've seen it a few times. Yeah, it just seems like the mergers never stop happening. And then even these small firms pop up and then they, you know, they say how independent they are and then they end up merging <laughs> along the way. Um, is bank brokerage dead in your opinion or is there still a path for that? Yeah, I mean, I think it probably will exist. The, the, you know, banks have a lot of clients. They have clients with assets and the bank can benefit by introducing them to someone to do some business. May not be the optimal client experience, may not be the best portfolio solutions those clients can get, but most times clients aren't aware of what their options are and and not to cast uh, doubt on anyone's track and career. There's different models for different people, but you know, if you're outstanding at going out and developing new business, that's probably not where you wanna be. If you struggle with that, but you enjoy the client relationships, that's probably a good place to be. So, you know, an entrepreneur can probably do better and make more in, in a non-bank model, but that's not the right fit for everyone. Uh, yeah. So, so I think that will continue to exist. The wirehouse model, I think, is dead. I don't, I don't know why anyone would be there anymore. I mean, when I when I started 26 years ago, there was only a handful of choices, and if you wanted to be a million-dollar producer and you wanted to work with million-dollar clients, you only had a few choices. Um, now technology has just completely leveled the playing field. So, you know, in your business and my business and Merrill Lynch's business, everyone has the same technology, the same tools, the same products, you know, research and information is everywhere. So, you know, you can, you can be successful anywhere. And so, you know, with a big wirehouse, you have so much top-down management, compliance, legal, you know, it's run like a big firm um, and, and generally you're also getting paid less. And so uh, I don't see the benefit anymore, quite frankly. And, um, you know, Merrill Lynch and the bull went from being a huge advantage to me on my business card and after the financial crisis, not so much. Yeah, 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 absolutely. What would be your advice for advisors out there that are going to look around either in the small boutiques or in the wirehouses, as you said, the wirehouse is probably dead. Uh, they're, it looks like most of those are changing their structure and the salary, but what would be like the three to five top things advisors need to find out about the firm they're going to? Yeah, I mean, obviously how you're paid, uh, and there's so many different models now, it's confusing at times. I mean, you, you can basically be your own business owner and take almost all the revenue, and you know that means all the costs associated with that business are yours as well. But if you're a business-minded person and you don't mind that, then that maybe is the right place to be. Opposite end of the spectrum is probably the bank model where you know you might get paid a salary and a bonus uh, and you're gonna be introduced to clients that you're gonna work with and you're more of a servicing and that's all fine too. And then somewhere in the middle is you know uh, regional firms, the different variations of independence. And so it's, you know, it's, it's a matter of aligning yourself with the firm that has the tools and technology and resources that you need and matching up your skill set, whether you're a client service oriented person or whether you're an entrepreneur and a business person. And so there's never been more choices than there are right now. And so, you know, just want to carefully evaluate all those different options and then make sure it's the, it's the right 
mesh with your skill set. What would you tell, I mean, you've managed a bunch of high producers and you've managed some low producers. What's the difference between the high producer and the low producer in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, the highest paid people on our business are the ones that can develop new business, right? And so, you know, I had multi-million dollar producers that I worked with at Merrill Lynch that were terrible at managing money. They weren't much better at managing client relationships, but they could bring money in the door. And so, you know, that's really how teams have developed because you put together a group of advisors that have that complementary skill set, but still at the top of the food chain is going to be the one that can get assets and drag them in the door. So again, it's really, it's what are you good at and where do you want to focus at? And, and I found that, you know, a lot of advisors would plateau doing four, five, six hundred thousand dollars A, because they got comfortable financially and, and B, you know, when you have clients, you spend more of your day servicing those clients uh, and there's less time for business development. So some combination of comfort um, and initiative, but you know, those that want to take it to a new level, they either, you know, brought in partners that could, that they could offload the day-to-day requirements uh, or they focused on fewer, bigger clients to reach those higher levels of success. And so, you know, as a director for all those years and involved in not having a book of business and spending most of my time coaching and guiding advisors, that was really it. You know, if you're, you're doing five or 600 and you're happy and no desire to take it any further, nothing I can do or say is going to help that. Um, but if you want to be a million dollar or a two million or a $5 million producer, then the plan is to figure out the path to do that. And so you can't open more $200,000 accounts and get there. And you can't be searching for new assets all day, every day, if no one's taking care of the existing clients. So, you know, fewer, bigger clients uh, and or a team is typically the path to those higher levels of of productivity. You mentioned team. That's a a big push by many firms. Is that, um, you know, for younger advisors getting in the business, would you say that's the way to go? I think it is. You know, it's really hard to, as a very young person with no life experience and no investment experience to sit across the table from a guy with a few million dollars who's run a successful business or a physician, et cetera, and look at that person and say, I'm going to turn over all my money to this guy. And then you may be very smart and very well trained and have great technical skills, but what you don't have is life experience. And, you know, quite frankly, I thought I knew everything I needed after a few years of training. But when I look back, I realized I knew nothing. And unless you've been through two complete business cycles and made all the mistakes on the way up and all the mistakes on the way down and dealt with the client emotions around that entire process. You know, I, I don't think you can deliver maximum value to a client. So yeah, we're all good advisors in a bull market. Aren't yeah, we? yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's when they don't need us. Yes. Um, so, you know, I think the way in is to team and partner within an experienced advisor or team, you know, spend most of your time developing new business, but also learning, and far easier to introduce, you know, your business partner who has 20 years of experience and has done all those things. Your close ratio is going to be so much higher. Now, the key is to be with the right people that are going to treat you fairly and not try to, you know, screw you out of your your business. And that's a common problem too. But it's how still, do you fix that problem? Yeah, I don't know. Integrity, having clear expectations of um, of what everyone's role is, having common goals, having common values. And that's where you want to involve management to help you because you don't even know what you don't know. And you just, if you just blindly trust your partners 
And if, if things come to a head, the manager is going to side with the guy who's doing a million dollars in revenue as yep. opposed to the young kid who, you know, maybe rightfully brought in a bunch of relationships. But so, you know, having clear expectations up front is super important. And if you are with a wirehouse firm or a place where you have management to guide you, get them involved to help you put those agreements together to, to protect yourself. Because I've seen that a lot where you put a lot of time and energy in and you know, they feel like they're they're not getting properly compensated and you know that advisor is going to die in that chair and not going to retire and turn over the business so you need to really think about what is the long-term plan and how do you earn greater ownership in that practice and so the more of that you can be clear about up front the, the less chance you have of, of having a you know uh, an unpleasant experience yeah we've seen that we've heard that from many young younger people in the business and some of them could have been good in the business and end up leaving the business because of these bad arrangements. So it's actually, you know, I guess the bank channel is not dead for younger advisors. Definitely a great way to build something there. And then if you're not going to, I think teaming is the only other option. Yeah, and and the wirehouses are still hiring people and training. I mean, much less so. Uh, you know, my years as a director there, I don't think I ever had less than 20 advisors in my training program, sometimes as many as 30. And so, you know, we would hire five and fire four and one would make it and you know so we'd hire 25 or 30 a year and we'd we'd create five new financial advisors and the process just continued on but you know they're doing less and less of that and um, all the other firms are they want to hire successful uh, advisors with a big book of business and the competition for that is at an all-time high and so there's fewer and fewer of those advisors out there and you know the population of advisors is aging that's a big problem with a lot of firms. So we need younger people to come into the business and um, probably the best path is gonna be through some type of teaming or partnering arrangement, which which helps you get up and running in the practice. And for the firm, whatever the organization is, solves the uh, transition dilemma for advisors that you know are not gonna work forever. And it's interesting you say that because the bigger wirehouses, as much as they're dead, they're the ones that are offering the biggest salaries to these people right out of college and trying to mold them and get them. And it, it puts them at an advantage to the, the independent side. But can they see past that, that is there an opportunity to really build the book? You know, do you go for the big salary now with the sale that you're going to create your own book through Merrill? Or do you team up with a, a boutique firm like your own or an independent firm, which might be better for you in five years from now than being at Merrill? Yeah, and look, Merrill, you know, they shut their training program down for quite a while when the markets were difficult. Uh, now they uh, are, are barely recruiting. I mean, they're losing market share. They're losing advisors every single year, and that trend continues unabated. So, you know, so they're back to, you know, training advisors and bringing them in. And, you know, oftentimes they put them in a bank branch or they link them to a bank branch. They link them to a team. So no one has figured out, you know, the secret formula. There's no one way to do it. But, yeah. Um, but you know, those are some of the some of the options that are out there. If you were uh, driving home in about 20 minutes, 30 minutes from now, and you're you thought about something that you would have liked to have left on this podcast that you thought was interesting to the audience or that you could add value, what would that be? Yeah. For, don't ever give up your book of business. Uh, we'll start with that one. Reiterate it, if you will. I think it's important to be involved in the investment process or have someone on your team that's very involved with the investment process. If you just farm all of that investment management out and you know just do the planning and the service work, 
and, and you can't speak intelligently about how those assets are invested, I think it puts you at a disadvantage. Um, you know, I run all discretionary portfolios currently, and of course you can't do that early in your career. Uh, but again, if you partner, you can. But you know, clients, they like to know what our investment strategist thinks, but they really wanna know is what I think. Mm -hmm. right? And so you know, at any given time, and right now, probably a perfect example, there's really smart people that think that uh, the low in the market is in and we're gonna see you know, a really strong year-end rally. And there's others that think we're going into a multi-year recession and the market's probably gonna move down 20% more from here. They both got really good track records and they're both really smart people. So that's all well and good, but you're the advisor. You're the one that's in control. You're the one that has to make decisions on where to put those clients' money. You have to guide them through very good and very challenging times. Um, and I, I think the more expertise that you have around that and the more wisdom that you can share with them from your own personal experiences, the more they appreciate the relationship and the more they're willing to compensate you for that relationship as opposed to, you know, anyone can put them in a portfolio of managed ETFs or pick half a dozen money managers and there's nothing wrong with that per se. But uh, I, I say you want to be involved just to a high degree in the investment process. And I think that's a kind of a lost art and is a, um, is a competitive advantage if, if, if you can do that well. Yeah, I, I fully agree, actually. So you know, the two takeaways from Ed are, are never give up your book of business, which, you know, I agree with, <laughs> and, uh, and be involved in the management of the assets. I think you're right, and I think firms are actually pushing advisors away from being involved in the process for liability's sake. But isn't there a liability to just handing that money off to other managers? And I, I guess that's a question you have to ask yourself. But, I, I, you know, the second thing, be involved in the investment process, know what you're talking about. And if you don't know what you're doing because you're young, get involved in a team that actually is managing the assets. And I, I concur with, with both of those. So Yeah, and, and just the last thought would be, you know, there's going to be some people who are fantastic at developing new business. There are going to be some that love financial planning. Uh, some the service part of it, some the investment managed part of it. You know, figure out what it is that you're really good at it. And, and if you are going to team and partner, put yourself in a position where you can spend most of your time doing the thing that you're best at and that you enjoy the most. And this way, everybody will be more productive. The client relationship uh, will be more impactful. And ultimately, you'll wind up doing more business and doing better work. 100%. And that's where teams should come into play is, you know, people that have different strengths and utilizing those strengths. So... Ed, thank you so much. By the way, if anybody listening to this has an interest in potentially joining a boutique firm and going under a guy who's actually producing and managing, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, so I'm on uh, I'm on LinkedIn, um, you know, egrimpy at uh, brileywealth.com or my cell phone, 561-252-1019 and available day and night. So, uh, but you can definitely find me on LinkedIn or on brileywealth and shoot me an email and let's... Um, Grab a cup of coffee or lunch one day. Excellent. So, and as always, you can reach out to me if you want to reach out to Ed. Happy to connect uh, as well. And hopefully you guys enjoyed the podcast and got some value today. And uh, we look forward to the next one. Thank you.